Well, hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Michael. I help out with our student ministries, our guest services team. Any greeters in here? Whoop, whoop. There we go. All right, so we got our greeter team in here. We got communications. And I have the joy of sharing with you guys from God's word this morning. Drew's on vacation, and um, he gave me a really awesome text to teach on. So before we get in, is anybody kind of excited that summer's over? Is that weird? Some of you are like, dude, okay, kids are going back to school. It's going to be nice. Come on. There we go, Tammy. Give it up. Man, sometimes summer can feel a little bit more crazy than the fall and the winter, right? Like everybody going everywhere, vacation, busyness. It gets a little chaotic. Yeah, but August seems to be that month where everybody sneaks in their last vacation, right? It's like, let's go. Maybe some of you have one planned this week, next weekend. I get it. It's okay. When I was in, in, uh, in high school, I remember going on a family vacation with my parents. We went out to a little place called Colorado. Now, if you guys have ever been to the Midwest in the middle of August, you know that there's something really special that happens. It's called thunderstorms. All right? So we fly into this place and I was, I was excited. I was pumped. I was ready for it. We went in and we went to like the Air Force Academy. We went to Pike's We also went to Castle Rock, which was awesome. But the thing that stuck out the most in my mind from that trip were the thunderstorms. In fact, there were some cousins of mine from California that were out there with us. And every night, without fail, the sky would start erupting in lightning. Now, for us in California, this is not commonplace especially in August. So we were like, this is so cool. So we ran outside, we're dancing in the rain and stuff, which in hindsight was a terrible idea. (laughs) So we're out there dancing like in our flip-flops running around and, and just in awe of how amazing it was to see lightning go across the sky and, and how cool it was to hear the thunder. And the people who lived there, they were like, you know, kind of peering out their windows, like looking at us like, are they okay? They're from California. You know, it's like, but for some reason, it was like we found this great sense of awe in it. And the people who lived there, they were just so used to it. It, it, didn't, it didn't do anything for them. You know? It's an unmistakable event when you experience like a lightning storm. It's unmistakable. You can't get around it. It's happening. You can see it. But there are so many different reactions and responses to an event like that. And today in the text, we're going to talk about an unmistakable event. We're going to talk about something that we're not going to miss when it happens. There's going to be a lot of different responses. Before we get into it, I want to talk about um, something that can be kind of like an elephant in the room for a lot of modern evangelical churches. And that's, that's this idea. It's the idea of God's judgment. God's judgment is kind of this un- uncomfortable topic. And maybe you come from a background of being burned by Christians who only seem to want to talk about God's judgment, never seem to want to talk about God's love. Maybe you're here because um, your wife brought you here or you're here because you were invited by a friend and you were just like fingers crossed, hoping they weren't going to talk about the judgment of God. Hang in there, please. <laughs> Give it a shot with me. Here's, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Hang in there. We're going to walk through something today that I think you're going to want to know because we're going to address a question that I think if not everybody in here, most of us in here have asked at some point in our lives. And it's this, what do we do with God and evil? What do we do with God and evil? Because as Christians, we believe that God is good. We believe he's powerful. We believe that he's he's everywhere. We believe that he has foreknowledge, he knows what's happening, but if God is good and God is powerful and evil exists, how does that work? 
Maybe this is a question you've had in your own heart. Maybe this is a question that someone you love has asked, that someone maybe has turned away from the faith in, in asking this kind of thing because they haven't received something to answer that. Because the argument goes like this. If God is all good and if he is around and evil exists, then how can he be all powerful? Surely he's not all powerful because if he's all good and all powerful, he would just create a world in which evil didn't exist. And the other argument would be, well, if God's all powerful and God like exists and there's evil, he surely isn't good because he would have done something about evil. What we're going to talk about is an answer to this question that we find in the text. An answer to this question that, that some of us may not like at first, but my hope is, is that you would see his love in it. Because the reality is, is that all of us make choices. We make choices. And God, in his love and in his wisdom, has allowed that to be the case. In fact, the Bible says that in God there is perfect love. He is perfect love, and perfect love casts out all fear. And he wants us to truly love him. He didn't create us as robots who just automatically believe in God and automatically want to love God because that's not true love. The love that he experiences in the Trinity with him, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is a, is a love that is chosen. And it's a love that he offers to us for us to respond to. But what we're going to see is that God actually has an answer for the sin and the pain and the suffering and the evil that exists in this world. And I don't know about you, but I want a God with an answer for that. I want a guy with an answer for human trafficking. I want a guy with an answer for abuse. I want a guy with an answer for, for, for how is sin just so rampant in this world. And what we're going to see is that God's judgment is an answer against that. It's an answer to him making right that which is so wrong. We're going to see that in the text this morning. And what it's going to point us to is the fact that every single one of us, no matter where we are, no matter where we are in our story, no matter where we're going, every single one of us desperately needs Jesus. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 22 through 37. And last week, Drew talked about Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he was saying how the kingdom is here, it's among us, it's present. And now what we're going to see is he's going to turn to his buddies. He's going to turn to his his inner circle, and he's going to say, the rest is yet to come. There's more to the coming of the kingdom. And there's going to be something that you desire with that. And when it comes, it's going to be unmistakable. And we're all going to see how desperately that we need Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. God, I come before you this morning just with humble hearts, asking that you would work in us, or that your spirit would be speaking to us as we open up your word and as we dig into what truth you have for this morning. God, I believe that, that you brought everybody here who's here for a reason. God, I pray that you would soften their hearts and open their minds to receive what it is that you have for them this morning. And that your word would go forth in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the beginning of the text talks about the timing of the coming kingdom. Because the kingdom may be here, but it's also coming. The kingdom that's here came in like an unobservable way, right? We talked about the manger. Jesus showed up in a manger. He didn't show up on like a white horse with a sword. That's the next time. So the first time he comes really, really softly in a manger. But the timing of the coming kingdom is going to be a lot more obvious. So this is what it says. Jesus says to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man. Now, I'm not really a sports ball guy. 
I'm sorry. I know everybody at this church is, like, or at least it feels that way. Like, I don't really understand sports, like football, baseball, all that stuff, but I have been to a baseball game, okay? So I have a little bit of credibility here. And I went to one of the Giants and the Dodgers. Apparently that's a thing, right? Like they hate each other. And then those who like them hate other people who like them. I don't get it. Anyway, so it was a ton of fun. It was like the rivalry game, right? And so we're there in the stadium and like there's garlic fries everywhere, which are awesome. And it was a really cool game. You know, there's the guy behind you, you know, boo Dodgers, you know, this is what I was experiencing. But the thing for me that was so interesting was I never understood why they would like be like, okay, hold on, everybody. They run out on the field and get in a little huddle, right? They're out in the huddle and they're kind of talking and whispering, saying stuff. I just wish there was a microphone in there. You know, like I want to know what they're saying. They're sitting there with the huddle and then they come back and there's some sort of change made in the game. There's some sort of difference that happens. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling a huddle with his team. He's calling together his buddies. He's saying, hey, here's what's going on. Come here, come close. Here's what's happening. There's going to be a day that you wish the days of the son of man were here. And he's saying this is to his team because his team it needs to respond to this in a way that's different than what they may have been doing already. He's inviting them to a response, to a reaction to what he's saying. Now, the days of the son of man is kind of an allusion to this Old Testament thing called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's this day that was promised to be a day of judgment against sin where God would right the wrongs of this world. And Jesus here is referring to the days of the Son of Man, meaning the days after this has happened when he's ruling and reigning on this earth, and the, the wrong has been made right through him. And what he's saying is, you're going to long for this to happen. You're going to be longing for this. You're going to be wanting for this to happen. But if you look closely, he says, and you will not see it. He's telling his disciples in the huddle that you're actually not going to see this coming, you're, you're not going to see it in your time. It's going to be a future thing. And Jesus continues by saying, and they will say to you, look there, look here, don't go out and follow them. What he's referring to is there's going to be a lot of people showing up who want to say that they've got this thing figured out and they're the Messiah. You guys remember Harold Camping? (laughs) We're not going to get into it. But there's like people who have come in and claimed that like, oh, God's coming back. Here's what's happening. There's people who came in who claim to be Messiah figures. And Jesus is saying, Don't follow them. They're not me. When I come back, it's going to be an unmistakable event. Here's how unmistakable it's going to be. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man. He's saying it's going to be unmistakable. You can see it from anywhere. When he comes back, it's going to be very clear. It's going to be very observable. But he doesn't finish talking about the timing of the kingdom until he says this last bit in verse 25. He says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is talking about himself. You see, the son of man is a term that originated like Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 through 14, where it says, I see one like the son of man coming on a cloud to judge the world. It's this Old Testament prophecy of who Jesus is. And as he's referring to his suffering and his rejection, he's referring to Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about the suffering servant of the Lord who would come to suffer for the redemption of God's people. This is Jesus. Jesus is talking about what he's going to do. This is actually the fifth time he predicts the passion. The fifth time he's predicting what's going to happen to him on the cross. That he's going to suffer. That he's going to be rejected by this generation. But that is so necessary to God's plan. 
You see, that needed to happen. Jesus needed to suffer for the sins of man. Jesus needed to be rejected by this generation so that we would not be rejected by the Father, so that we would not receive the suffering that's coming in judgment of sin. Jesus suffered and was rejected for us. And it's a reminder that we so desperately need him. We so desperately need him. And he is so good to have gone and followed through with the plan of God to have taken that sin for us on the cross so that we might have relationship with him. So Jesus starts with talking about the timing of the kingdom. And then he pivots to talking about the nature of the coming of the kingdom. So there's something that's gonna be happening before Jesus comes back, what it's gonna look like. And he uses two Old Testament examples, one of a guy named Noah and another one of a guy named Lot. The first text starts like this. It says, there we go. There we go. So just as it was in the days of Noah. Now, for those of you who have been around church, maybe most of you know the story of Noah. For those of you who don't, um, let me tell you, this, this story is about a guy who brought a bunch of animals into an ark, right? And for some reason, and I'm sorry if you've done this, but it's painted in a lot of like nurseries across America. And like, it's like fun little nursery rhymes. And there's all these little animals and like cute little Noah with a staff. Like that's not really how like it looked, okay? It was a bad deal. It was, a, it was a bad thing that happened. See, God actually brought a flood to wipe out the earth. But, but before that happened, he said something about the quality of what life was like. In Genesis, it says this, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty bad, right? That's pretty bad that God would say that every thought, that every intention of the hearts of man was evil. And so God acted against that because although he's loving, he's also holy. And as a holy God, he must judge sin. But what's so amazing about this story is that God chose to rescue. God actually rescued Noah from this. He looked down and saw that Noah was righteous and called Noah to himself and said, hey, build an ark. I'm going to save you from the destruction that's to come. And while this is happening, while Noah's building the ark, the text says that they were eating, drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, right? Like, we wouldn't sit back and say eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage are evil things, right? But the point here is that they were going about their day in abject rebellion to God. They were going about their day totally just unaware of God, totally unconcerned with God, totally removed from him. And we know from the text that they were evil in their heart, in their minds. Everything about them was to do evil, to do sin. And they were going about eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and it destroyed them all. It was, it was total. There, there was a totality to it. There was a finality to it. But the flood came and it wiped clean the earth so that God could start over. Now, what, what's kind of a part of the tragedy of this story is that Noah's still a sinner. Right? Noah still sinned. The first thing he did when he got off the ark was sin. And so God acted to make right what was wrong, and yet sin persisted on the earth. So there's a time coming when he will do it with the ultimate finality, when he will ultimately deal with sin and with evil in this world. Now, it's not just the story of Noah that he refers to, but also the story of Lot. Now, for those of you who who don't know who Lot is, Lot is a relative of one of the Jewish patriarchs named Abraham. Hebrews refers to him as the father of faith. Really cool guy. So Lot was living in a town called Sodom. 
Now, Sodom was known by the surrounding areas as a horrible, dreadful place. I mean, this place was full of sexual immorality. This place was full of sin and evil to the point at which other settlements and cities that were around were actually praying to God for the destruction of Sodom. It was bad. In fact, it got so bad at one point, the the people in Sodom tried to assault two of God's angels. And finally, God decided that he would bring his judgment against Sodom. But God, in his loving kindness and in his mercy and in his grace, rescued Lot. He rescues him. He actually tells Lot, hey, this is what's coming against Sodom. Grab your like family. Don't look back. Don't take anything with you. Go. Because I'm bringing judgment against Sodom. But if you look back, you will receive the same judgment that Sodom will receive. And so as they're fleeing, this is kind of what's happening in the town. They're eating, they're drinking, they're buying, they're selling, they're planting, they're building. Again, nothing inherently wrong with these things. But the problem was that they were living in rebellion to God that they were evil, that they they were doing these things totally apart from him, totally removed from him, and totally full of sin. And so God actually brings fire and sulfur down on that city and destroys them all. Jesus tells us, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Man, when that happened, while they were fleeing, Lot's wife actually looked back. She looked back and she experienced the same judgment that was coming upon Sodom. She was turned into a pillar of salt because of her faithlessness, because of her unbelief, and because she valued the things of this world over the things of God. And she experienced the judgment that was meant for Sodom. Now, it might be kind of hard at this point to see this as loving, right? Is that fair? It might be kind of hard at this point to see this as loving. But I would say that there's probably nothing more loving than a warning like this. And when I was 17, I'll tell you what, I thought I was super good at guitar, all right? Like, I was like, shred, I was like, into it. I was like, dude, I'm so good at guitar. Like, I thought I was it, right? I brought my guitar to school, thought I was super cool, played on the worship band, and we hired this worship pastor at the church I grew up at. And there was one day, I don't even remember what I said, but it was bad. And I said something to the worship pastor, he's like, you, outside, now. I'm like, so we go outside, and he says, what is happening, what is wrong? Why are you so prideful? Why are you so full of pride? Do you not know that's going to lead to destruction? Do you not know that your life is headed for, for just terrible things if you continue living this way, if you continue being full of pride, being full of yourself? And you need to check that. You need to work on that. In fact, hey, you need to be off worship for a while. You, you need to not be a part of this for a bit. You need to take a break. Right? You need to start working on that part of yourself. And can I tell you right now, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. I don't know who I would be today apart from that. Like a good coach, he calls me out on my behavior and says, hey, this is not okay. This is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and because of that, man, I, I can stand here today and say, like, that's something I worked on. That's something I continue to work on. And I'm so thankful for him doing that in my life. And Jesus is calling the disciples with this. He's calling us with this, saying, look, look there's something coming. There is destruction coming. There is judgment that's coming against sin. And there's a response that he invites us to. The response that he invites us to, we see in the next part of the text, where he talks about these reactions to it. But before we go there, there's some similarities we need to talk about from the stories of Noah and Lot. So in this story, we see that both of these areas, there was rampant immorality. It was bad. It was so bad that that God judged them and God brought his wrath against them to wipe it clean. 
There's rampant immorality, and in the same way, there's going to be rampant immorality when Jesus returns right before he comes back. It would be full of sin and evil. It was also totally unexpected and totally unmistakable. They were just going about their day. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, marrying, building, planting, all these things. And that's when God's judgment came. They were living totally apart from God, totally unexpecting him to be who he says that he is, to be the holy and just God that he is. And when it happened, it was totally unmistakable. Like, you can't miss a flood, right? (laughs) You can't miss a pillar of fire. Like, come on. It it was totally unmistakable. And Jesus is saying that when he comes back, in the same way, it's going to be unexpected and unmistakable. The next piece is that there was a sense of finality to it. For the people of Sodom, for the people in Genesis before the flood, that was it. It was done. But this time when Jesus comes back, it's not, sin isn't going to keep going. When Jesus comes back, sin's done. He's going to eradicate sin and death. And Revelation talks about a time where there's no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more hurt, no more sickness. Just the glory of God shining on the earth. That's what's coming. That's what he's inviting us into. And then finally, the last piece that we see in both of these events is this. God's rescue. He rescues out of that. He shows his grace. He shows his love. He shows his kindness in his rescue of his people. And he's doing that with you and I today. He does that with you and I today. He invites us to respond to the rescue that he's offered in his son, Jesus. But let me remind you, it's not just something we're saved from. Because that's great, right? Like, I mean, when you're a kid, you're like, dude, I want to accept Jesus in my heart. Shoot, like, hell's coming for me? Like, it's, it's a scary thing, right? But we're not just saved from something. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just this thing where we're trying to avoid it. We're saved to something, We're saved to joy in Jesus. We're saved to a life for him, a life full of giving him glory and pointing others to him. It is such an amazing thing that he's invited us into to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's the rescue that he offers us. So after discussing these things, we see so clearly how desperately that we need Jesus. We need him. We need him to save us from the sin that that so corrupted our hearts that is so plaguing our world. We need Jesus. And so he continues to talk about some responses to the coming kingdom. So when the kingdom comes, there's gonna be a lot of different responses to it. And Jesus is gonna highlight some different ways that people respond. And and I'll tell you right now, they're not gonna be favorable. They're not great responses. Check this out. It, It says this in verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come back to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. You guys want to memorize a verse, Luke 17, 32? Remember Lot's wife. That's a good one. You can put it on your wall at home, put it on a picture frame, whatever you need to do, right? He said, remember Lot's wife. This is what happened. Back in Jesus' time, in like first century Israel, the houses were kind of square-shaped, and they had open roofs. It was like these sweet rooftops where people actually slept. Like, you think that Eldorado Hills is hot? Dude, try Jerusalem, okay? So they were up there sleeping on the rooftops. And what would have happened is he's saying, if Jesus comes back and this guy sees it happening, this unmistakable event, like lightning arcing across the sky, if he responds to it with running back for his stuff, he's gonna miss it. What's happening is he's talking about valuing the treasures over treasuring Christ. The second example is very similar. It's somebody who's working in a field, likely harvesting, maybe planting, 
But instead of focusing on the harvester who has returned, he cares too much about the harvest that's in his field. Again, valuing the things of this world over the things of God, just like Lot's wife, who was full of unbelief, who was valuing the things in Sodom over the things of God. And Jesus says this at the end of this little section. He says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This shows up six different times in a little bit different variations across the gospels. Do you think it's important? Maybe, okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all thought it was worth writing down and some of them multiple times. Okay, so this point here is so key. It's key to understanding the second coming. It's key to understanding following Jesus because what it's talking about is these people who are trying to gain, 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 and build up their little kingdoms of one, but they're missing the kingdom of the one. And what's happening as we build and we gain and we gain is we realize that we're really losing. We're really losing as we're trying to build up these things for ourselves as we turn back. And what he's saying is, man, turn from these things. Actually focus on Jesus. Don't try to just gain things in this life, but focus at the end. Maybe you guys have seen our rope. This here is the sermon illustration that keeps on giving. Am I right? You might be sick of it. Don't worry. We're going to talk about it again. So look, we got the black part of the rope. We got the yellow part of the rope, right? The yellow part goes on forever and ever and ever. And the black part is this little tiny part here. Compared to the the yellow part of the rope, how big is this? Like almost nothing, right? And yet this black part of the rope represents our lives here. The eating, the drinking, the marrying, the building, the planting. It's our lives here. And what can happen is we get so focused on building up treasure here, so focused on building up our kingdom of one here that we miss out on God's kingdom. And we miss out on focusing on eternity. We miss out on the fact that what he's actually called us to do is to take eating, drinking, building, planning, buying, selling, all these things, and use them for the glory of God. They're actually good things that he's created to use for him and to use for the kingdom. But what can happen is we can get so focused on this part of the rope. And if we're honest, inside of each of us, we can be a little bit more like Lot's wife than we want to admit. When we get so focused on the here and now, and we miss out on what God has for us. The next couple examples that Jesus gives us are pretty similar, but the idea that he's talking about is a little different. Here's what he says. He says, I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. The idea here is separation. He's talking about separation and how there's going to be a defining factor of those who are saved and those who are left for the judgment. There's something different between the one who's taken and the one who's left. Now, if I was one of the disciples at this point, I might be a little nervous. (laughs) So we're sitting there in a huddle with Jesus. Remember, he's like, all right, guys, here's what's coming. Like, this is the judgment that's coming. And maybe I would have forgotten the part where he said it's not going to happen while I'm alive. But still the disciples say, where, Lord? Where? Where is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? How is this going to happen? What's happening? So they ask this question, and Jesus responds with a proverb. A little proverb, and he says this. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This has a very similar meaning to the story of the the lightning arcing across the sky. The idea is, it's going to be unmistakable. You can't miss it. You can't miss it when it happens. Because as we know, if you see vultures circling overhead, we know that there's death on the ground. 
That's the point of the story, that it will be totally unmistakable. But guys, look, this is love. This is love that he's telling us this. This is love that he shared it with his disciples. This is love that Luke recorded it for us so that we would have it today. This is his love on display, warning us. Because the reality is we're going to be tempted multiple times to bail. We're going to be tempted multiple times to focus on the things of this world instead of the things of God. We're going to be tempted to put those things on the throne of our heart instead of letting Jesus be on the throne of our heart and treat eating, drinking, and planting, and building, marrying, all as things that we can do for his glory. And so from this text, we see very clearly our desperate need for him and how desperately we need Jesus and how it's only through him that we're safe from this judgment and it's only through him that we can actually have new life in him where there's joy, where there's true life in the kingdom. And so this text has a lot of implications, but we're going to focus on just a few of them. The first one being that I think from this text, we see that God's justice is actually a sort of like comfort. Now, if you're feeling uncomfortable right now, let me tell you, that's okay. It's, it's actually kind of normal. We aren't necessarily, necessarily supposed to like judgment, right? We're not really supposed to like the fact that's gonna happen, but we are called to believe in it. We are called to believe that, it, that it's a real thing and that God is going to right the wrongs that are in the universe. And the fact that that's a reality for me is comforting. Because like I said before, I want a God with an answer for the pain in this world. I want a God with an answer for the sin in this world. And he offers it to us. He says, there's coming a time at which he will return and he will make right that which is wrong. But if we take this as a source of comfort, this idea of God's justice and him judging sin, if that comforts us, but if we go to share that with somebody, there's probably some little guidelines we should put in place, right? Because, you know, to say, hey, I'm really sorry that happened to you, buddy. But guess what? God's coming back and he's going to judge them. Like, that wouldn't be appropriate. Nobody in here would do that. But check this out. There's this matrix we've been using on staff to kind of talk about ideas like this. And it's theology, tone, and timing. Okay? Theology, tone, and timing. The idea is we want to have a good theology, Right? We want to have a right understanding of who God is, of, of the idea of like, okay, we want to understand that there is this judgment that's coming. We want to have a right understanding of the study of God. But if we get all the theology in place, if we understand that, okay, he's coming back, he's going to judge sin. But if we miss out on the tone and we miss out on the timing, we're going to do way more harm than good. But if we can get our theology in order with, okay, God's coming back. He has a plan to deal with sin and evil in this world. And we work on our tone to a point at which it becomes loving, saturated with love, saturated with grace, sharing from a place of the heart, of understanding. Then we're moving closer to it. But check this out. If we have the right theology, we have the right tone, but we do it at the wrong time, it could also do more harm than good. And so when it comes to somebody who's struggling with this problem of God and evil and its existence and justice and and free will, all these things, we've also got to remember the timing of it. Because the timing is so important. When someone's going through that, most likely there's actually an underlying emotional issue that's happening, that they're dealing with, with this problem. So what we're called to do as believers is to lean in, is to love, to listen well, and to be the living proof of God's love in that situation. And then we might have the opportunity to share the fact that God is going to do something against evil. The next idea is this. 
that God's justice is a source of motivation. This is a source of motivation both to follow him and also to introduce others to him. Because as much as maybe some of us would like to, we cannot erase hell. Hell's a reality and it's not a joke. It's a very real thing that there will be people who experience a eternity of separation from God in eternal torment. It's a very real thing. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Did you guys know that? It's crazy. He talked more about hell than anybody else because he loves us. He's warning us. He's saying, hey, look, this is what happens for those who do not trust and treasure Christ. This is what happens for those who do not follow Jesus because God is patient. God is patient. He, he's wanting that none should perish, but that we would actually turn to him. But while he's patient, he's also holy. And a holy God has to have an answer for the sin and the evil and the pain in this world. And let me tell you, none of us are apart from that. Every one of us is, is deserving of the same judgment that's coming against the sin in this world because every one of us are a sinner. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us within us, our hearts are desperately wicked. But God has actually made a way for that to be changed. Right? God, in his great love, has made a way for us to have right relationship with him, with his son Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross through his suffering, through his rejection, is he took the wrath of God that would have been like a flood, like a pillar of fire. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that those who trust and treasure him would not experience that. He took that upon himself and then rose from the dead, defeating death in his resurrection so that we might have new life. And that new life is available to anybody who would respond to his call to follow him. That new life is available to anyone who would respond to him, which, which brings us to this idea we've been talking about all morning. And it's this, that we all need Jesus. No matter where you are in your walk with him, no matter, no matter how you feel about it, like, here's the reality. I need Jesus every day as a follower of Jesus. And I think the sooner we realize that, the better off we're going to be because we realize that he's going to produce the faithfulness in us that's required to follow him. He does that in us. And he's, he's saving us from our sin. He's changing us as we lay aside the weight of sin and focus on Jesus. As those who are yet to believe, look, here, here's the reality. You need him. You need Jesus to save you from, from the way that things are. Maybe you're, you're living like the days of Noah or you're living like the days of Lot. Maybe you're just going about your life grinding grain, totally just unengaged with who God is and, and his plan for this world, his plan for your life. You're invited to respond to him. The love that he put on display in the cross is available for anyone who would respond to the call that he has to follow him. And so this morning, we're going to do that. We're going to respond by taking communion together. Now, I love communion because communion is a beautiful picture of God's love for us. That his body was broken for us on the cross. That his blood was shed for us. And when we take that, it's a reminder of what he did. It's a reminder of the work that he accomplished on the cross so that we may have relationship with him. It's a reminder of the judgment that he took upon himself so that we may know him and so that we might have joy abundantly. This is what we celebrate in communion. We're gonna play a couple songs. Feel the freedom to, to sit where you are for a bit if you need to. But hey, what I would recommend is take some time to do some business with God.
if there's things in your life when, when you've been maybe living a little bit more like Lot's wife, man, talk to him, turn to him. He's faithful to forgive us. For those of you who have yet to treasure Jesus, you guys can stay where you are. This is something for, for those who have chosen to follow him, those who treasure him. But man, can I just encourage you for a minute? He loves you so much. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that he died for you, that he sent his only son to pay for the sins of the world so that we might have right relationship with him, so that we could live for the joy that he offers us. That's available to you. Man, if you, if you wanna to talk to somebody about that, we're gonna have some prayer team people up here after service. We also have some connect cards on the front of your chair. You can write that on. We read those as a staff, we read them and we'll call you, we'll talk to you during the week. Talk to the person who brought you, talk to somebody. Because our hope as a church is that we would walk with you as you discover what it means to follow Jesus. So let's worship together and let's thank him for the grace and the love that he's shown us in his son, Jesus, and for the awe that he inspires in us and what he does. Everybody said, amen.